There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. Every city, town, and village in this country has its own unique history, full of strange people, odd occurrences, and tumultuous times. The great city of Toronto, along the shores of Lake Ontario, certainly has a storied history, one full of misfits and mayors malingerers, 'er ne'er-do-wells, and so many more. The land Toronto sits on was the traditional territory of the Mississaugas, a sub-tribe of the Anishinaabe people. In 1793, after it was sold to the British government, the city of York was founded. Interestingly, the name Toronto was originally a Mohawk term describing a narrow body of water that ran between Lake Simcoe and Lake Kuchiching. There was a Fort Toronto, where Toronto now stands, and the harbor was once called Toronto Harbor. The first lieutenant governor of Upper Canada, John Simcoe, did not want an indigenous name describing his new city, and so he chose the name York instead. By 1834, York was the largest city in Upper Canada, but it was also that year that the city council voted to change the name to Toronto. Now today, we are going to learn a bit about the strange history of that city, how a brawl between clowns and firefighters revealed the serious power dynamics within the city, how one of the most important political figures in Canadian history had a bizarre post-mortem request, and how a strange competition led to a massive spike in the birth rate. This is Season 8, Episode 14, Strange Tales from Toronto. Guiding us through these strange tales today is historian and author Adam Bunch. Adam is the author of the Toronto Book of the Dead and the Toronto Book of Love. He is also the host of the Canadiana documentary series on YouTube 
and the creator of the Toronto History Weekly newsletter. Adam is also helping to organize a really interesting festival that is coming up soon, the Festival of Bizarre Toronto History. This festival is dedicated to exploring strange stories from the city's past. It is a week filled with online lectures, panels, interviews, and walking tours featuring some of Toronto's greatest storytellers. Now, if you want to learn more about this festival, the website is BizarreToronto.com. And the festival will be running from April 3rd to April 9th. Tickets are already on sale, so go and check it out. That is our recommendation for this episode today. Adam started out by taking us back to the middle of the 19th century, to a circus and clowns and trouble. So this is, yeah, the middle of the 1850s uh, in the summer. Toronto's uh, really a growing city at this point. The first railroad has just uh, gone in. But in a lot of ways, it's not really that sort of conservative, proper Toronto, the good image that it'll try to cultivate uh, for itself a few decades down the line. It's still, in a lot of ways, a pretty rough and tumble frontier town. Uh, 30, 40,000 people. Uh, Still, yeah, growing wooden sidewalks and muddy streets very uh, infamously uh, and an absurd number of taverns giving the population at the time hard drinking, uh, hard playing town too. Uh, we think there were scores and scores of brothels uh, in Toronto in the middle of the 1800s. We'll never know for sure since it was obviously illegal and sort of had to operate in the shadows. But uh, judging from sort of court records and the kind of charges that were brought against women at the time, it seems safe to say there were at least scores of them that in, mm. uh, attracted a whole variety of clientele, including one night in July of 1855, uh, some clowns from a visiting circus. Uh, and this is sort of the early days of circuses as we think of them, uh, you know, in the 21st century uh, and days when circuses were pretty rough and tumble affairs, too. Uh, and it kind of makes sense that they were these traveling groups of artists and performers who would come visit your town, sort of live literally and metaphorically on the outskirts of the community. And uh, at the time, wear pretty skimpy, racy outfits. Uh, so there's lots of sex work associated with circuses at the time, too. Uh, they're hard-drinking places, uh, lots of gambling, and places that are no strangers to violence, either. Uh, one lion tamer back then claimed that a circus had to be an elite fighting unit, because coming into these towns, and bringing all this sort of sin and immorality with you, uh, having gambling and drinking and sex work, there was uh, very, very often violence too. And you get all these stories of circuses having to flee towns and cities across the continent uh, once the violence breaks out. So these clowns uh, who are part of this big visiting circus uh, are 
presumably pretty tough-nosed crew. Uh, they're part of this really big, famous circus, S.B. Howe's Star Troop Menagerie and Circus. Uh, Howe got his start working with P.T. Barnum. Uh, he's credited with sort of the idea of having uh, big circus animals for the first time in North America, shipping in things like herds of elephants and giraffes. Uh, so you can see the ads for this. Uh, circus in Toronto that they're going to have these animals and as well as acrobats and clowns. Uh, so it's a big deal, big moment of entertainment in Victorian Toronto before <laughs> uh, there was too much to do here. Uh, but the clowns decide they're going to go have a night on the town after their performance and they head to one of the brothels. Uh, a place run by a woman named Mary Ann Armstrong, uh, which was on King Street, so the main town in the city, but uh, off on the outskirts a bit, where the, actually right on near the spot where the big film festival headquarters are today, which is now right in the thick of downtown, uh, and decide they're going to enjoy themselves at Mary Ann Armstrong's brothel that night, uh, which is where they have their run-in with the firefighters. No one knows how the fight started exactly. There are conflicting reports in the newspapers at the time. Uh, some say that the clowns cut in line in front of the firefighters. Others say a clown knocked a hat off a firefighter's head. Uh, what we do know is that the firefighters were also no strangers to violence back in the middle of the 1800s. This is before there was a centralized public uh, fire department and competing fire companies would uh, quite literally physically compete for the right to put out flames, that they would race to the fires and sometimes fight each other for uh, the sort of the commission, the pay for putting out the fire. And it had only been, I think, a couple of weeks before this night at the brothel that this particular firefighting company, the Hook and Ladder crew, had been involved in a big riot uh, called the Firemen's Riot, where they had responded to a fire on Church Street right downtown. And instead of just putting out the fires in these people's homes, uh, they also started looting the homes uh, and stealing everything they could get their hands on. Uh, and the police were called, and when they arrived, the firefighters attacked the police. But uh, the firefighters and police officers were all also members of the Orange Order, uh, the big Protestant organization in Toronto that was just sort of getting a stranglehold on power that would last for a century to come. The, Toronto was an extremely orange place, extremely Protestant, British, anti-Catholic, where for the next hundred years, all but I think one mayor of Toronto would be a member of the Orange Order. You couldn't really get any public jobs at all if you weren't, uh, which meant basically all the police officers were members and all the firefighters were members. So when the charges were handed out, all of a sudden the police officers couldn't remember who the firefighters were, who were there that day, who were their names, or their faces, which is sort of how orange power in Toronto worked back then. Mm -hmm. So when the firefighters clash with those clowns, the clowns have really picked the wrong guys to mess with. 
that these are a uh, hardened group of very well-connected firefighters. And it's the worst possible night of the year for it. So it's July the 12th, which is the biggest day on the orange calendar, uh, a celebration of an old uh, Protestant victory over Catholics in Northern Ireland in the 1600s, the Battle of the Boyne, uh, which in Northern Ireland and in Toronto gets marked with a giant parade. Uh, the Orange Order has yeah, thousands of people in the parade, tens of thousands of people at its peak in Toronto come out to see it. It's basically a public holiday. Municipal employees are given the day off uh, for you know, decades and decades. So it's an extremely big night for the Orange Order, a particularly passionate time to be picking a fight with these orange firefighters. So the clowns win the fight that night, that brawl at the brothel. And uh, I think one of the firefighters is pretty seriously injured and they retreat to go home and lick their wounds, leaving the clowns to enjoy their night uh, in peace at the brothel. But uh, the next morning, the Orange Order is bent on revenge. So they head out to the fair green down by the lake on the edge of town where the circus has pitched their tents uh, and all sort of the Orange Order friends of those firefighters start attacking the circus. Uh, they're shouting things like murder the damn Yankees and uh, we'll have the livers out of them, particularly grisly threat, uh, start tearing down the tents and setting fire to them. Uh, they've got axes and cudgels and they're chasing the circus performers uh, through the fair green. There are stories of uh, clowns and others racing out into the lake to try to escape uh, their pursuers. The police are of course called but they're all members of the Orange Order so they basically do nothing uh, but watch uh, even the police chief arrives, Chief Sherwood, uh, who manages to get them to stop uh, setting the animal cages on fire and takes uh, pity on those beasts, but does very little other than that. Uh, eventually, the mayor has to come down from City Hall and call in the militia before everything sort of returns to peace and the circus can get the hell out of town uh, before any more Orange Order members come looking for them. And it end up, ends up being sort of one in a whole series of these events uh, that sort of highlights for Toronto how much power the Orange Order really has. Uh, I think the Globe newspaper says the city is basically at the mercy of these bands of ruffians, uh, that police chief will continue looking the other way uh, in riots in years to come. Uh, there's a big, uh, yeah, I think, Catholic-Protestant riot where a Catholic gets pitchforked to death uh, years later. Uh, he eventually lets a bank robber escape uh, and ends up sort of building this scandal over the years until eventually he and every other member of the Toronto police force gets fired. Uh, and they sort of start the whole thing over from scratch. Uh, though, of course, a lot of those officers end up getting rehired and it's still a very orange city and will be all the way into the 1950s. Uh, 
but yeah, the circus riot sort of plays this role in uh, one of the first big moves toward police reform in the city uh, and yeah, highlights how the orange order ruled our town for yeah, a little more than a century. Well, it's so it's so interesting. Um, I mean, first of all, it's fascinating that there's an anti-American element to it. Um, I think that's really interesting. So the circus is from the United States, right? These came up from from the U.S. Um, the, so Chief Sherwood, right? Uh, yeah. Is he he's a member of the Orange Order? I would assume. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and yeah, has their support. In fact, yeah. I think it's after the pitchforking that there's a big showdown with the mayor. Uh, who is himself a very fascinating figure, this guy, uh, Mayor Bolton, who grew up in one of uh, Toronto's most powerful families, uh, the family compact uh, he was a big part of as a kid, which ruled Toronto in its earlier years. Uh, but he's also a member of the Orange Order and is sort of a bridge between one era to the next. And the support of the Orange Order sort of uh, propels him into the mayor's office uh, where he actually has his own scandal, uh, where it turns out that he's the landlord of another brothel on King Street, operating uh, out of the back of an oyster shop that's run as a front. Uh, and the neighbors, who are sick of the noise coming from this oyster shop late into the night, uh, complain to him, the landlord, he refuses to do anything about it, probably because he's getting inflated rent off this brothel. Uh, and it all ends up blowing up, going in the papers. Uh, he uh, ends up involved in this court case where the guy running the brothel, a black man named Daniel Blonksom, he's the one who has to face the repercussions, while the mayor, Bolton's own uncle, serves as the judge with Mayor Bolton, the landlord of the brothel, sitting next to him as an associate. Uh, so Bloxham gets fined, Bolton gets off scot-free, ends up losing the next election, coming back like 10 years later, where he has a big showdown with the chief after the pitchforking, and no one gets uh, convicted for that, uh, where the police chief actually ends up winning that showdown and the mayor ends up having to resign while the police chief stays in his position with that orange support for a few more years. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The next story that Adam is going to tell us deals with Robert Baldwin, one of the most important political figures in Canadian history, but also a man crushed by the death of of the love of his life, and in turn requests something very odd after his own death. Mr. Baldwin is, yeah, one of the giants of Canadian history. And uh, I've heard sometimes responsible government get held up, uh, sort of an example of how dry Canadian history can be. Uh, but it's actually tied to some of the juiciest, strangest uh, stories in our country's history. And a lot of that's because of Robert Baldwin himself. 
so he's part of the first generation of settlers to grow up in Toronto after it was founded, back when it was the little town of York, uh, sort of uh, involved in all sorts of big events in Toronto's early history. He's a boy when the Americans invade during the War of 1812. His dad is a big political figure, an architect. And Baldwin himself, Robert, uh, grows up uh, sort of in this political family that's going to champion responsible government, uh, but also has this very passionate uh, private life. The Robert Baldwin, as a teenager, is falling in love with the girls of York uh, just all the time. Uh, his best friend, uh, this guy James Hunter Sampson, counted at least 10 times that Robert Baldwin had been in love. He's writing uh, poetry, uh, odes to their beauty, and talking about his crushes to this best friend, uh, who also uh, seems to be in love with Robert Baldwin himself uh, and says that he will love and esteem him more basically than any woman ever could. But uh, as Baldwin's heart keeps getting yeah, caught by these young women uh, and none more so than uh, a teenage girl by the name of Elizabeth Sullivan, uh, Eliza, who becomes the big love of Baldwin's life. Uh, he falls truly, deeply, madly in love with her, uh, is convinced he's going to spend the rest of his life with her. Uh, but uh, their families disapprove. And in part, that's because she's still pretty young. Uh, they don't want them getting married. Uh, Eliza, when they meet, is just 14 or 15. Baldwin's a few years older, uh, still pretty young. But more than anything, their families disapprove or really, I should say, their family, uh, because they're first cousins uh, who uh, have fallen in love, but it will be a scandal even in the early 1800s if, uh, if they get married. So the family decides to separate them, and they send Eliza off to New York City uh, to go live there, thinking that since they're teenagers, they'll get distracted by someone else, uh, and seriously underestimating uh, Baldwin's romantic uh, sort of fatalism that forbidden love is sort of the greatest gift they could have given him. Uh, so he and Eliza send all these letters back and forth. Uh, yeah, he writes more poetry, uh, sort of gets lost in daydreams at home uh, as he smells the lilacs outside the window that remind him of her. They arrange a time, one hour every month, where they know they will both be thinking only of each other, uh, so that they're brought close over all that distance, and eventually the family just gives up, uh, lets Eliza move home. They have a pretty quiet wedding ceremony uh, in the town's first church. Uh, James Hunter Sampson uh, is forced to serve as the best man, while it seems like his heart's probably been broken. Uh, by maybe the love of his life, marrying uh, this other woman instead. Uh, he will go on to become a very powerful politician in his own right, and one of the most conservative uh, figures in the province, opposing everything Robert Baldwin's about to do with his own political career, which starts uh, at the same time that he's starting this family with Eliza. Uh, they're deeply, deeply happy uh, they live at 
the original Spadina House, uh, the new version of which is now a city-run museum in Toronto. They got a house downtown too. Uh, have three kids, but this is, of course, an incredibly dangerous time to have children, and uh, labor is a life-threatening ordeal sometimes, which includes uh, when Eliza gives birth to, I think, their fourth child, uh, which is complicated enough that she needs to have a cesarean section, and the wound never really seems to heal or it gets infected, and slowly kills her over the course of about two years, leaving Robert, this deeply romantic man who is so deeply in love with her, uh, deeply, deeply heartbroken. And he basically suffers from a pretty severe depression for the rest of his life, uh, including through all these very difficult, sometimes even violent battles over responsible government, uh, that he becomes one of the, if not the central figure in the championing of this idea that Canada should basically be a real democracy, that the elected parliament shouldn't be able to be overruled by the British governor's veto, which is passionately opposed by the Tories uh, and the family compact and the orange order. Uh, but the whole time that Baldwin's fighting these huge forces, he is also grief-stricken, uh, plagued by nightmares and insomnia. There's stories of him falling asleep in Parliament because he can't get a proper sleep at night. Uh, everywhere he goes, he carries her love letters with him in the coat pocket closest to his heart. So if you ever see a painting or a drawing of Baldwin, you know that those letters are in there in that coat pocket. Uh, every year on the anniversary of their wedding, he can be found roaming the streets of Toronto, uh, visiting all the landmarks of their relationship, starting down at St. James Church, where they got married. He visits their old house, uh, eventually makes his way up to Spadina House, uh, where he's kept her room untouched. It's kind of a shrine to her memory that only he's allowed to enter. Uh, and then visits her in the family's tomb, which is right there on the property, which is where she's been laid to rest. And he has this, yeah, big battle of responsible government, finally wins it, has this big dramatic day where uh, when the governor general signs off on it, he gets pelted with rocks and eggs, and there's a gunfight at Baldwin's uh, sort of partner politically Lafontaine's house in Montreal. The Tories burned down the parliament buildings at the end of the day. Uh, but Baldwin and Lafontaine don't resort to violence. The whole thing dies down. Canada is a democracy sort of for the first time in a lot of ways. Uh, and not long after, Baldwin retires and uh, goes back to sort of doting on Eliza's memory. Uh, and he's a religious man who's been longing for death uh, pretty much his whole adult life, wanting to be reunited with her uh, in the afterlife, uh, which happens pretty early. He's only in his 50s when uh, he starts getting really sick, eventually passes away and is laid to rest beside her in that same tomb. And it's not until weeks later that the family finds the note 
that Baldwin has left for them. It's in the pocket, I think, one of his vests or coats, uh, a list of his final requests. And some of them are pretty ordinary, touching uh, wishes. He wants to be buried with those love letters uh, that he'd carried in his pocket, uh, with a brooch that she'd given him as a gift. But some of them are, are truly bizarre. One of them is that he wants his coffin to be chained to Eliza's coffin so that he'll know that they'll be sort of <laughs> yeah, united together, forged with these locked, locked in harmony. <laughs> yeah, definitely spending eternity together, both in the laughter life, but also uh, with their physical remains. Uh, and the strangest one of all is that Baldwin asks for his corpse to be given the same kind of cesarean section wound that had killed his wife. And he's very clear that he wants this carried out even if this list isn't found until after he's been laid to rest. So a few weeks after uh, his big public funeral, I think Toronto's first state funeral, uh, his relatives descend into the tomb with a doctor and a scalpel and crack his coffin open, uh, split open his stomach, uh, then shut it back, uh, closed, and wrap it and Eliza's coffin in chains. And today, the tomb's been moved from their old property at Spadina into St. James Cemetery, sort of on the slopes of the Don Valley, or Rosedale Valley. Uh, and it's still there, this tomb, where you can go stand above and know that you're standing above the bones of sort of the champion of Canadian democracy, uh, chained to the bones of the woman he loved. While the story of Robert Baldwin is rather unusual, something even more unusual occurs with an event known as the Great Stork Derby. Uh, that starts with this very wealthy Torontonian, this guy, Charles Vance Miller, uh, who's made his fortune uh, by modernizing stagecoaches out west, by replacing horses with motorized vehicles, uh, but never gets married, never has any children, has no one to leave this fortune to. Uh, and there are stories, actually, too, about him being maybe heartbroken in his youth, that as a young, struggling lawyer, he'd fallen in love with a woman, but gotten rejected because her family didn't think that Miller was rich enough uh, to live up to their expectations for uh, providing for their daughter. He becomes sort of an aggressively uh, single man, some say it bordered on misogyny all the way to the end of his life. Uh, and he's also a big prankster. So when he dies, uh, it's on Halloween, which is an appropriate date, uh, in 1926 that he walks up some stairs a little too, too quickly for his 73-year-old heart that gives out. And uh, he leaves behind this fortune and this deeply weird last will and testament uh, that in some ways kind of gives Baldwin's uh, final wishes a run for their money. Uh, and his friend who finds it at first thinks it's all just a practical joke, uh, because it really is. But Vance uh, Miller uh, is also a very good lawyer, 
so this will is airtight uh, and uh, ends up being enacted that's full of these weird jokes. Uh, so for instance, he gives a bunch of uh, Protestant ministers who are very much uh, against uh, alcohol in favor of temperance. They, he, he gives them a bunch of stock in the O'Keefe's Brewing Company, uh, a very famously Catholic company too. Uh, he also gives shares to every Orange Lodge in Toronto, uh, trolling them as well. Uh, he gives uh, a few of the most passionate opponents of gambling and horse racing, memberships to the Ontario Jockey Club, uh, and three lawyers who infamously just despise each other, he gives a shared vacation home in Jamaica. But his weirdest uh, bit of his last wishes is what prompts the Stork Derby, which is that he says the rest of his fortune is going to go to whichever woman in Toronto has the largest number of babies over the course of the next 10 years. And it sparks this race to have kids, uh, a bunch of legal battles too. The Ontario government calls it uh, the most revolting and disgusting exhibition ever put on in a civilized country, uh, which is quite something from a government that had just taken the Dion quintuplets away uh, to be put on public display at around the same time. But the judge says the will's airtight and that he can't really find the idea of having babies immoral. Uh, so the whole thing stands and sparks this race to have these kids. And in the meantime, the world and his estate uh, are both going through big changes. Uh, so he dies in 1926, but the Stork Derby is not going to end until 1936. Uh, so in the meantime, the stock market crashes, the Great Depression hits, uh, and people... Uh, many people in Toronto, just like other places, are desperate for the kind of money they could get from Charles Vance Miller's estate, uh, which is the whole time also growing. Uh, so when he dies, it's already a fortune, but some of his investments start paying off uh, during those 10 years. Uh, so for instance, he invests uh, just, I think, $2 in the idea of a tunnel being built between Windsor and Detroit. Uh, so when that tunnel becomes a reality, that means hundreds of thousands of dollars more gets added to that estate, which is uh, I think more than $10 million added on uh, in today's money. And so you have these often desperately poor families now racing to try to get that prize. It's a time when a lot of people are thinking this is a bad time to have a baby because you can't afford to raise it. Unemployment's so high, even rages for people who still have jobs are so low. Uh, the number of marriages in Toronto and everywhere else is uh, cratering and the birth rate is too. They call it the baby bust, this huge dip in the birth rate everywhere except certain pockets of Toronto, it seems, where these families are racing to have these kids. Uh, and in the end, uh, it sparks even more court cases over who gets to qualify. And when the end date finally approaches, which I guess must be Halloween 1936, uh, all these different families come forward. And it reveals uh, a lot about prejudices in Toronto at the time, that some families get disqualified uh, because their children 
some of them were uh, had out of wedlock and the government discriminates against illegitimate children. Uh, one woman gets disqualified because she's married to an undocumented Italian immigrant. Uh, some families have children, but then those children die in infancy. Time magazine writes that one is uh, killed by a rat even. Uh, and those families also get disqualified that your children need to have uh, lived up to the point of the end of the contest uh, in the end. Uh, all of which, yeah, reveals sort of these grisly realities of what Toronto was like during the Great Depression. And in the end, uh, it ends up being a tie between four uh, women, all of whom managed to have nine babies over the course of those 10 years, uh, and each of which ends up taking home uh, something like $125,000, so something like $3 million uh, in today's money. Uh, and a couple more that end up settling out of court. Uh, so uh, the, the great Toronto Stork Derby, I guess, was a success uh, from Miller's point of view. And enough so that it actually inspires uh, another Stork Derby about a decade later, uh, when an old mayor of Toronto, Thomas Foster, dies. Uh, he basically does the same thing and uh, it all starts up again. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.